It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to All That's Jazz. The focus of this episode is the Blue Note Entertainment Group, which was founded in 1981 by businessman and entrepreneur Danny Ben Susan when he opened the legendary Blue Note Jazz Club in New York's Greenwich Village. Ben Susan has been credited with revitalizing the jazz scene in New York City, and over the years, there's been an expansion of the Blue Note brand by opening other jazz venues in Japan, Europe, South America, China, as well as other parts of the U.S. The internationally known and revered Blue Note Entertainment Group has also had under its umbrella a jazz festival, other music venues, a record label, and more. Currently, the Blue Note Entertainment Group is under the strategic and critical thinking leadership of Stephen Bensusan, who serves as its president and is our guest today on All That's Jazz. Stephen, thanks for being here with us today. Well, thanks for having me, Alan. So, is that pretty much a good description of the development of the Blue Note Entertainment Group? Yeah, it's a good description. We've, um, you know, we started our expansion about 35 years ago into Tokyo. Um, with the first club outside of uh, the United States, really the first almost franchise jazz club uh, in the world. So what we do is we license the name to local operators and uh, we book all the talent here out of our New York office. So, you know, and over the years, that model worked really well for us in Japan uh, with having over at one point over four clubs in Japan and a jazz festival. Um, the um, And then we, we kind of took that model and, and went to other markets and we've been doing that ever since. Mm -hmm. So let me start out by asking you a little bit briefly about the history of it. Your father came to this country from Israel and he had some knowledge of uh, jazz, but at the same time, that wasn't the primary focus of opening this business. He was trying to see what should be coming next in the entertainment business as disco was on the decline and the music scene was changing. Uh, and, and then there was jazz that came into the picture. How did that really come about uh, where, where the jazz emphasis came into Blue Note? Yeah, uh, my, my father, like you said, came into the United States uh, after a stint in the Israeli army in 69. And, and he was, um, you know, in the, in the restaurant and uh, nightclub business. Uh, he started off as a bartender at a bar here in Greenwich Village. Um, worked his way up and, and became friendly with one of the owners. Uh, and then they ended up opening a disco in the 70s in, in Brooklyn. You know, went very well. He ended up selling that. And uh, he bought this building where the Blue Note is. And he was looking and trying to figure out what to do. At that time, jazz in the early 80s in New York it was, you know, you had all the jazz clubs, uh, the Vanguard, the Village Gate, Sweet Basils. Uh, they were all around, but most of them didn't have food. They didn't have, uh, it wasn't a, a supper club dining experience anymore in the jazz clubs. So he brought that back to New York, you know, and, and was able to open a club where we're able to serve food and beverage throughout the shows and uh, have to get people who not necessarily the 
hardcore jazz aficionado, but someone who just wanted a good night out to see live music and 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 see some great music and some jazz. And and, and they were very lucky in the beginning. You know, he had it, we were a little bit bigger than some of the other clubs, able to bring in some bigger name artists. You know, Ray Brown had a lot of uh, effect and, and helped us really build the uh, the artists, uh, you know, comfort level in the club. Um, so that artists like Oscar Peterson and Dizzy Gillespie and Sarah Vaughn all felt at home here at the Blue Note. And um, quickly the reputation uh, became as, uh, you know, it grew very quickly and um, became the premier jazz club in New York, you know, where concert artists were now going back into the club scene. It's really a remarkable and fascinating story, only from the perspective, from my view, was that Blue Note seems to have always been there. And then when you read in print that uh, it initiated uh, the business uh, model in 1981, it's like, what? Are you sure that's not a misprint? Uh, Because I've always had that uh, impression that, you know, Blue Note was always there. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, because of the reputation that we uh, managed to obtain fairly quickly. You know, people think we've been around for a very long time. I mean, I believe if you read uh, Bob Dylan's autobiography, he wrote that in the 60s, he was looking out of the window at uh, at Folk City at the Blue Note, <laughs> which, which, you know, the Blue Note wasn't here. But the perception is, is that we have been here for a long time. And, you know, it has a lot to do with the fact that Bluto Records, you know, is the historic legendary label that's been around forever. You know, they were out of business in the 70s. Capitol Records bought the catalog and revived the label in the mid 80s. So, you know, when we opened the Blue Note Jazz Club, there was no Blue Note Records, an active Blue Note Records. I'm glad you mentioned that because I know that Blue Note uh, as a record label started in the uh, late 30s. So hence the, the long time uh, establishment of, of that label. But when the Blue Note Entertainment Group opened, uh, there wasn't necessarily a correlation or a partnership with a Blue Note label, or you didn't have to uh, seek the permission to use the name Blue Note? No, we didn't because they were, they were dormant. And uh, when they, uh, when Capital came back and bought the label and, and started it back up, uh, we did work with them a bunch. You know, they did a series of shows here. They took over like Monday nights for a couple of months and and uh, in there to promote their launch uh, or relaunch of the, the Blue Note label. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, we have a good coexisting relationship and, you know, we you know are in the live business and they're in the recorded business. We try not to step on each other's toes and we try to work with each other when we can. Up until recently, we were collaborating with them a lot, which is great. You know, and I'm uh, I'm hoping we do a lot more in the future. When you were growing up, what was it like in the Ben Susan household for you and your siblings, uh, for example? Because I know you didn't become involved directly with the entertainment group until what, 1996, I believe. When- yeah, but I was around before that. 96 is when I graduated from college and, and came in full time. But I was here working as a kid, you know, working the door in high school and and uh, got to know all the artists. And, you know, most of the artists that played here became friends of the family. And we, you know, it, it's great being able to grow up. And it's not that strange to hang out with Dizzy Gillespie <laughs> or, or, or Sarah Vaughn or Horace Silver. 
or, you know, and, and uh, just being exposed to the legends of, of the music uh, at a young age was, uh, was amazing for me. And, um, you know, I think that a lot of the musicians over the, over the years continue to play at the Blue Note because it's a, a family business and they feel at home and we try to make them feel at home and we're, we're um, you know, we all became friends. So you were kind of hanging out in, in the back room or at least uh, around the building and, as you said, got involved with uh, certain responsibilities or job tasks. Yeah, I mean, I, my dad would bring me around and I would help when I was younger. I remember helping to paint and helping to, you know, helping uh, clean the, uh, you know, bring dishes up. I was, I was always working someplace and doing something within the clubs. And uh, my brother as, and sisters as well. I mean, we all kind of grew up here. You know, it's a great place to grow up. <laughs> you know, we can't, can't beat it in, in, in terms of a, a lesson in American music. You know, I've seen everybody from, uh, from Ray Charles to Tony Bennett to, you know, all of the legends, uh, Etta James. I mean, it, it, it goes on and on. What do you think was the mystique or at least the aura about the Blue Note Club that brought all these people in. Why would these legends of jazz want to gravitate to Blue Note? What were you doing at Blue Note that drew everybody in? What was the drawing card? Well, I think at the time there weren't, there wasn't a club with like proper dressing rooms. You know, they didn't take care of the art. They they took care of the artists, but not like we did. You know, we gave them dressing room space. We gave them a a bathroom and a dressing room. I mean, something like that and something so simple, you know, was missing from some of the smaller clubs around town. You know, we created an environment. I remember we were probably the first club in New York to have a no smoking policy. You know, and mainly because the vocalists like Betty Carter and and Abby Lincoln and and uh, Sarah and Carmen McRae always complained that, that they can't sing in the smoky room anymore. They were a little bit too too. They were older. They didn't want to be in that environment. So we tried to create an environment that made the musicians feel comfortable at first. And they became so comfortable. You'd see a lot of musicians, you know, and I've, I've been flipping through pictures a lot during the pandemic, during lockdown and, and so forth. And see, just seeing all the musicians hanging out when they're not even a show, just coming into the dressing rooms and, and gathering and, and, uh, and just being here. And it was a, it was a good environment, community environment that, that we created for the musicians. And it did have a lot to do, and like I mentioned earlier on, with musicians like Ray Brown and Mill Jackson and, and those, the first that came here and said, hey, you know, we can play here. We don't have to play just concert halls anymore and, and be comfortable. Well, and of course, that translated into bringing in the masses, if you will, for audience. And why not? Because you're getting to see these names and these people that are truly uh, the fabric of what jazz music is really about. Yeah. I think we pushed the limits also in terms of pay scale for the bands, paid them very well. Ticket prices were always a little bit higher here at the Blue Note back in the 80s, but you know, it was worth it just for that reason, to see them in a small intimate club. And so you were kind of an innovator also with the aspect of adding a menu to the venue as well so that there was a dining experience. Yeah, they, I, I'd say that it's not an innovation as so much that we just brought it back. I think that jazz clubs were more of the smoky bars in that time, you know, and, and as we opened, I, I think a number of jazz clubs in New York opened with the same concept, you know, of food and beverage more so than, 
you know, just being a place where you go and get a beer and, and smoke a cigarette at the time. So I think that that was uh, an important part of, of people coming and, and being feeling comfortable too, you know, and having a great meal and, and not being afraid of a jazz club. Like I think uh, at that time too, if you were going to a jazz club, you really had to be a jazz aficionado to go to whatever club in the village and, and not, not worry about who's performing and just knowing they're going to see somebody great. And over the years, and it still happens to this day, people come to the Blue Note and they don't know who's performing until they get here. They, they ask at the door, and, and, but they've already bought a ticket. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's also, it's, it's kind of a, an educational experience for a lot of people too, and being exposed to the music. Doesn't matter because you had that reputation and that comfort level for somebody to come and enjoy music in a, a wonderful setting. And you said also that uh, you were much larger. Are you about 250 capacity somewhere in that range? So about 200 and uh, another 30 at the bar. So, yeah, I mean, at, at uh, some of the other jazz clubs at the time were most of the other jazz clubs were in the 150 range. You know, the Village Gate was bigger, uh, but uh, also a little bit different in atmosphere. Um, than, than the Blue Note at that time. But we are probably, I think we are the biggest jazz club in New York right now as well. So when and how did the globalization aspect of Blue Note Entertainment Group come about? Well, in the mid-90s, or was it mid-90s? Yeah, early 90s, actually. My, my, my father tells a story that, that, you know, they just kept seeing a tremendous amount of Japanese people coming and then Japanese tour groups and and... You know, it was a major part of the business in, in that in that time, in the late 80s, early 90s. And we were actually approached by a Japanese company to license the name. And, and at that time, you know, they, they tried to wrap their head around what that meant. License the name and then what? We, you know, they wanted to maintain control of what happens there because it's our brand and, and we want to make sure that they're successful. So came up with this model that's very, very similar to a franchise. You know, we license the name, we book the talent for them, we help them from beginning to end in opening the space, you know, everything from decor to sound system to their systems of operations we get involved with. And then as the venues open, we are continuously booking talent and continuously in contact with the management of the venue so that, that we, we're understanding that they're operating correctly. Uh, so that, that happened in, uh, in Japan. And like I said, it's been wildly successful. Blue Note Tokyo is, is a great club. It started off at 150 seats and then we moved it to a bigger space about five years after they opened. So they're, they're at about 300 seats right now. That's actually uh, quite large for a jazz venue. It, even traditionally, right. in thinking about it, it's almost a small concert hall. Right, right. And uh, but you see, if you go there, you see it still maintains an intimacy. People aren't that far apart. That that whole idea of the Blue Note is try to keep people as close to the stage as possible, even in the back row. And that's that's um, an important part of the way we build out the clubs. Do you impose a quality control standard? when the name is being used or is it something that you keep under your wing and, and make sure that it's maintained as the vision says it should? Yeah, we do. I mean, we try to make sure that any licensee is um, operating and, you know, approval of the menus, approval of their operating procedures, making sure they're not doing anything that we wouldn't do ourselves. 
in New York. And uh, so right now we have we have the Blue Notes in Tokyo. We have two in China. We have two in Brazil. Uh, we have Blue Note Milan. And uh, in the United States, we have Blue Note Napa, and we actually operate the Blue Note Hawaii ourselves. So that's not a licensed venue. But, you know, Blue Note Milan has been there for 20 years. So um, it's uh, been very successful. The others that I just mentioned all opened since 2014 to now. And I would assume you would also have a technology and a sound audio standard as well to achieve for the benefit not only of the musicians, but more importantly for the listener and the audience member to come and enjoy good sound because there's nothing like having a great venue with wonderful acoustics and you can actually hear what's going on instead of it being very uh, disturbing uh, in terms of audio level. Right. No, that's true. And we, uh, that is part of our quality control. You know, we, uh, at all of our, our Blue Note jazz clubs, there's top of the line sound and lights. Uh, we make sure that that's a, a focus of, of the money spent to open the venues. You know, we've had a number of Grammy award winning recordings from our clubs, uh, whether it be our own label at the time, Half Note Records, or others like Telarc and, you know, all, almost every label is recorded here from High Note to, to Blue Note. You know, we make it available and the more we can do now, the better. You know, I think it's important for our venues to be able to put out albums and, and help support musicians, you know, because it's, they're here, they're doing, they're doing their performances. They don't necessarily have to go to a studio and record if we can get the quality that they're looking for while they're performing here. You mentioned the Half Note Records, the label that is uh, yours under Blue Note Entertainment Group. And this was done with the expressed desire or goal of doing live recordings in your club and then moved on to a studio component, maybe? Is yeah, mostly, mostly live recordings. There were very few studio recordings, but, you know, it's a, it's dormant now. We're not really, we, we put a pause on, on the, uh, on, on putting out uh, albums. I mean, we, we started this in the nineties uh, when uh, the, the format was basically CDs, you know, and the whole model changed, business model changed. And uh, we we took a pause on on that. That being said, though, there have been a number of recordings that have come out from the clubs that aren't on our label since. And, um, you know, we support as much of that as we can. I mean, everybody from Robert Glasper to John Schofield and others have recorded here live uh, on other labels. And besides jazz, you also involved the group in other enterprises such as blues uh, and other other halls and concert venues like the B.B. Uh, King Blues Club uh, that uh, I think is still maybe temporarily closed, but maybe about to uh, rise from the ashes again? No, actually, B.B. King's, uh, in, in New York City, we had B.B. King's for 20 years. In 2017, we actually lost the lease. The landlord um, decided they did not want to renew our lease, our 20-year lease, mainly because it's, um, I don't know, I, it sat empty for a long time, and now I hear it's going to become a Target retail store, hmm. which is kind of ridiculous. But uh, it was a great venue. It was 600 capacity seated or 1,000 standing, and we booked everything there from, you know, jazz legends like Sonny Rollins to R&B and soul legends like James Brown and Al Green and Aretha Franklin and to uh, hip hop and, and uh, country music. I mean, it was a multi, true multi-purpose venue in New York for 20 years. 
it went very well. I, what we did though is we replaced it with we opened the venue in 2018 called Sony Hall in partnership with Sony Corporation. Similar size venue, great space on right nearby on 46th Street between 7th and 8th, and um, and it's it's going going really well. We're reopened now. We also had another venue in New York for a while called the Highline Ballroom. Also another situation where the landlord just did not want to renew the lease. I believe the, the space is still sitting there empty. And uh, we have other venues. We booked the Regatta Bar Jazz Club in Boston for a long time. We um, Unfortunately, it doesn't look like the Regatta Bar is going to reopen. We were just the talent buyers for the venue. We, uh, we operate the Howard Theater in D.C. And then, you know, we've also... I've done a lot of outdoor stuff. You know, we did a series of shows on Governor's Island in New York for many years. Right now, we're concentrating most of our outdoor shows in Napa. Since we have a Blue Note there, uh, we've been doing a series of shows at the Charles Krug Winery. And uh, we have a bigger space uh, that's called Oxbow River Stage, which is in partnership with Another Planet Entertainment. It's about 5,000 capacity. So like this year, we have artists like Bonnie Raitt and Leon Bridges and Nora Jones performing. So it's a, uh, a great space for us. And mainly you've gotten more into trying to do more outdoors since since COVID, you know, and, and we're able to uh, look for other opportunities where we couldn't have been open inside in some of those markets at the time. What about the jazz festival that you engaged with? Uh, is that still uh, maybe on the back burner or horizon possibly we've been doing a blue note jazz festival in new york for 10 years the what it has been is a collection of shows throughout the city everywhere from central park summer stage to town hall the beacon theater uh, as well as our venues that we own and operate typically over 100 150 shows sometimes uh, throughout the city in the month of june when we reopened in 2021 um, we reopened with our Blue Note Jazz Festival, um, which shows in Central Park Summer Stage and at the Blue Note Jazz Club. We're going back to our original format in New York, where we're putting shows all over the place, including a big show in Washington Square Park, uh, which uh, is the first time anybody really has used Washington Square Park for many years uh, for a concert. Um, but we're able to put that together in addition to four or five shows at Central Park and our venues throughout the or throughout town as well as town hall. So that will be the Blue Note Jazz Festival in New York. We're also doing a series of shows in Miami at the North Beach Band Show, uh, also uh, labeled uh, the Blue Note Jazz Festival Miami. And uh, we're going to be doing a two-day festival in Napa at the Charles Krug Winery, also as a Blue Note Jazz Festival at the end of July. So the festival is definitely here. I'm looking to expand and do more with it, especially because it's uh, it's – I want to focus more on outdoor. Also, in speaking about outdoor experiences, I understand in 2023 you're going back to the Jazz at Sea endeavor. Yeah, and that's a, that's what I was talking about in terms of collaborations with Blue Note Records. That's a that's us, Blue Note Records, and Michael Lazaroff's company who does the jazz cruises. We all put our heads together and figured out how to make you know, a very successful cruise. It's It's been five years now that we've been doing this. The 2020 cruise actually got off before COVID. So we did that. So 2021, we decided let's just move the 2021 to 2023, give it some time. And, um, you know, so we just moved that entire schedule from 21 to 23. And 
it looks great. I mean, it's a great lineup and um, I, I believe it's almost sold out. So that, mm-hmm. that's, you know, we're happy about that. There's been a lot of attention on social media about it. Even some of the artists themselves have been uh, doing posts and tweets, et cetera. And uh, you're right, the, the lineup is uh, stellar. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. It's like, why would you not want to be on this particular ship? Yeah, and the musicians love it too because it's kind of like the old jazz festival hang. You know, they're able to be in one spot, all the musicians are there. And, and because of that, you know, a lot of different collaborations happen, you know, that you would not normally see. And, you know, we, uh, we're looking forward to seeing that again on the cruise. So the pandemic, what would be the expectation now, Stephen, uh, at this point in time for someone coming to the Blue Note of New York? Uh, it, it's, it's, it, it's good. Uh, everything's fine. Just come on in. Uh, we're here for you. Because I know uh, through the rest of 2022, you have a full calendar, the, the, almost the entire year. What about protocols right now? Do you have to mask up to come in? What are you uh, requiring or suggesting? Um, we're not requiring masks, but you know we do our best to make sure that, that people are safe and comfortable. Uh, we changed everything we needed to do in terms of our filtration systems. Uh, we put in the MERV 2 filters and you know the, we did, we're doing as much as we can. I think that, that people... The, the, watching people's reaction when they first come back and, and saw live music again for the first time was pretty incredible. People were were really excited to be out, but even more so than the people, the musicians were excited. The musicians were sitting in their houses for so long and not performing, and the emotional responses from the musicians was over, was more so than anything. You know, it, it's been unbelievable to to see how that is, and some musicians who. You know, you you feel like they've been invigorated. You see them on stage, and I'm like, hey, you guys, I haven't played like that in 15 years. I mean, it's <laughs> it's unbelievable. Uh, without saying any names of who they are, but <laughs> it's uh, it it was it was a sight to see. I know we're we're pushing time here, but I, I want to ask you just a couple of other uh, things. Uh, one, of course, is an extension of the or an outgrowth, I should say, uh, of the pandemic, and that is streaming. Do you have anywhere in your business plan to incorporate maybe additional future streaming opportunities to where, let's say, if I live in Cleveland and I'm clamoring to see Monty Alexander or somebody that's just really a concert I don't want to miss and I can't make it to New York, could I stream uh, or uh, be the benefactor of your streaming at a pay rate, of course, not for free. Is that in your business model? Um, it is. We, we've been try- struggling a little bit with maintaining, you know, trying to figure out how to present this the highest quality as possible, uh, the most cost-effective way without interrupting our normal business. Um, because our venues are, t- are small, you know, for me to put live cameramen in place it's it's just not going to get to take up seats and it, it doesn't make sense. Um, we recently put in a uh, remote camera system, four cameras, four PTZ cameras uh, at the Blue Note New York, and we're doing the same in Napa and Hawaii. And we're going to, um, you know, we're we're 
planning on coming up with a system where we're always streaming from all of these three clubs and then adding the international clubs one by one, either on a subscription or on a pay-per-view model. We've been experimenting with pay-per-view model and the numbers aren't that great. You know, like I said, as long as we can figure out how to do it cost effectively, we'll continue to do it. But I think there's more of a uh, opportunity for us being that we are in all these other markets to have some sort of membership subscription, some sort of series that incorporates perks at the venues themselves. Something similar to, you know, I've been looking at what SF Jazz has been doing with their streaming and their membership programs. And that kind of makes sense to me. I mean, their their members are the ones who have access to the streaming in a subscription model, while that you can also do a pay-per-view if you're not a member. So that's something we're looking at closely now, but we are installing uh, cameras now in every in every venue. You know, there are all these opportunities that we're looking at now and where we can integrate new technologies into the venues you know maybe expose the music to additional people that may not have wanted to come to a club Uh, and and like you said others and other people in other markets that where we don't have a club where you definitely want to see an artist from a blue note jazz club and i'm glad you mentioned expose other people to an audience or to a performance uh, and the artists uh, themselves and Having said that, the final area just to touch on with you is how do we continue this legacy and move forward to younger, newer audiences? Well, I think that there that is a, a problem for the music in general, although we are seeing a resurgence in, in, in jazz and interest in jazz, um, especially for bands like you know, like we have playing here this week, like Butcher Brown and artists like Robert Glasper and artists that incorporate other types of music into jazz. And it's not a stretch to, to uh, you know, when you're when you're playing R&B or even hip hop incorporated into the jazz world. It's just like the next for me, it's the evolution of the music. It's one way the music is going. While at the same time, you still have traditional uh, music. And as we expose uh, these new uh, generations of people who come to see these artists, they come back to other shows. We see it. And we see it in our Ticketmaster reports. We see it in, in many things. So I think it's important for for us to continue to develop those artists, you know, in addition to bringing back the classics and, and, and the artists that, that do, you know, generate an older demographic. You know, we, um, you know, we're always looking for that. We're looking to help develop artists, you know, by giving them the opportunity to perform in all of our venues. And that's that's important because there aren't that many opportunities for people to perform anymore. Uh, there were more clubs in every city that, you know, 10 years ago. You know, we we feel a responsibility for that. And I'm hoping to open more Blue Notes uh, to, to help, uh, to help, you know, progress the music. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was about to ask, if there was anything like that in your uh, your future for the development, which, by the way, is still truly a remarkable and impressive thing to see how Blue Note Entertainment Group has developed into what it is today. It's truly uh, stunning. Well, thank you. It's It's been, uh, it's not easy. You know, in, in each market has its own tastes and preferences, so it's not like cookie cutter. You know, every venue is uh is tailored to the market that they're in whether that be the size of the venue or the programming you know we're hoping uh 
to really concentrate more in Europe going forward. We're looking at locations now in London and Paris. So hopefully we'll have uh, a flagship, um, you know, Blue Note European uh, outpost soon. Uh, even though Milan's been there for 20 years, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a smaller city, but we, we're looking at some of the bigger ones right now. So you haven't necessarily reached the point of saturation to say, look, that's enough. Let's just focus on what we got. But instead, uh, maybe you've developed a, uh, a sense of being like Jello. There's always room for jazz and maybe growth with it. I think there is. You know, we've, we've actually proven to be successful in a very small market in the United States, in Napa, and in, in uh, a middle-sized city in, in Honolulu, in Hawaii. And uh, so I, I believe there's a lot of gro- room for us in the United States. I mean, there are cities that don't really have proper jazz clubs right now that should. And we, uh, we're we looking at all those opportunities now. I think this is going, is going to be a good time for us for growth going forward. As a result of the pandemic, there are many places that we may, might not have had access to in terms of uh, real estate or um, you know restaurants that may not be there that we can convert to Blue Note Jazz Clubs. Um, it's a good time for us to expand and, and there are good deals for us to to uh, to take advantage of. So we're, we're looking at everything now. In closing, what's one of the best ways for some of our listeners to learn more about Blue Note Entertainment Group and all that you're doing? Um, well, I mean, we uh, go to, to our, our website, bluenotejazz.com, sign up for our newsletters. You know, we have a new website that's going to be launching in another month or so, you know, which will encompass more of, of of everything that we're doing. But right now the bluenotejazz.com website and, and signing up for our email list will uh, we'll get you everything you need to know. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. Uh, this has been a fascinating and enjoyable period of time to spend talking with you about yourself, your business, the Blue Note Entertainment Group, and of course, jazz music itself. Great, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with Stephen Ben-Susan, president of the Blue Note Entertainment Group. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net. 